group of Somali refugees descended from slaves who escaped extortion, rape and death in their home country and who lived for years in barren refugee camps in Kenya are planting the seeds of a new life, literally, as immigrants in the United States. We did not farm since 1991 up to now. So we got the sense of peace, the sense of community. We have been liberated. This is Daniel Dickinson, and for this Lid Is On podcast from UN News, I've travelled to Maine, a strikingly fertile rural state in the northeast of the US, to learn about how a community of former refugees has started a farming association to both preserve their indigenous culture and support their resettlement and integration into a new American life. Mohammed Mohammed hoes the stony earth on his one-tenth of an acre plot of farmland just outside the twin cities of Lewiston Oban in Maine. Dressed in a t-shirt, shorts and a colourful woolen hat, he's energetic and committed to working the soil by hand as the midday sun beats down on him. He's nurturing beans and corn. I'm happy because I am working the land. I'm sweating a lot, so I'm getting good physical exercise. I will use some of the beans and the corn for the family, and the rest I will sell. Mohammed Mohammed is growing African flint corn, a grain which Somalis use to make a traditional flatbread called mufo. Right now, these seedlings are just a few inches high. But within two to three months, and with the right care, they'll grow into seven-foot plants weighed down by numerous ears of tasty corn. It's a crop he last grew as a farmer back in Somalia in the early 1990s, when he was just 20 years old. Like many farmers, he has an almost perfect recall of the quality of the soil from which his crops flourished all those years ago. The soil here is very compacted and it's sometimes difficult to turn. In Somalia, I remember the soil as soft and fluffy. The rain and sun has been good this year, so I'm hoping for a good crop. The lushness of the trees and shrubs surrounding this windy hilltop field and the vitality with which his crops are growing reminds him of the land that he and the other 220 farming families who cultivate here were nurtured by back in Somalia. Land which, because of their turbulent and tragic collective history, no one is likely to return to. This is a story of persecution, which began as an age-old history of slavery in East Africa, and more recently with an escape from starvation, death and rape in Somalia. It continued in desolate and dangerous refugee camps in Kenya, and its latest and more uplifting chapter begins here at Liberation Farms in the green fields of Maine. My name is Mohidin Liba and my position is Executive Director. Muhyiddin Libar set up the Somali Bantu Community Association in 2005 and began farming nine years later. He's worked hard to create a new life for himself, his family and his extended community. 
He's the person who should really tell this part of the story, which began in the Juba Valley in southern Somalia. The whole journey started in 1991 when the country erupted into war and communities were randomly attacking each other. And because we are not armed, we ended up being in the between all these communities. If this community rapes, they loot and they kill, and then the other community will come, they do the same. So the casualty of Somali Bantus were even more than the two sides fighting. We have been killed by both enemies who are fighting to hold the town. But the town is for Somali Bantu and we are not armed and we just were sitting ducks. So we decided to move out of the country. And still the attack was following us all the way to the Kenyan border. Our people were being kidnapped and snatched food from. Some of the people were starved to death because they take the food away from you. We came over the border and that's when we started getting calm. The Somali Bantus who Muhadin Libar mentions are a minority in Somalia. Their presence in a country where they were always treated as second-class citizens can be traced back to the African slave trade of the 18th and 19th centuries. The physical, cultural and linguistic characteristics of the Bantus distinguish them from the majority of ethnic Somalis. On the whole, they've been excluded from education, land ownership, as well as political opportunities and representation in the Horn of Africa country. During the civil war in Somalia in the early 1990s, some 10,000 Bantus fled to refugee camps in Kenya. Muhyiddin Libar escaped to Dadab, a sprawling settlement of three camps in the desert-like eastern region of Kenya. The camps were supported by the UN refugee agency UNHCR. In the first years of the 2000s, it was home to around 150,000 Somalis of all ethnicities. Some, like the Bantus, had fled conflict and insecurity. Others, recurrent droughts and the displacement and poverty that created. I started in the Dab refugee camp when I was 15 and life was generally hard. The, the weather was hot, it's hotter than Somalia and it is hotter than any part in Kenya. There's no much you can do to the lives in the Dab refugee camps because it's a camp and everything is provided by UN. Even though it is limited, but your water is given, clean water, clothes sometimes, and food, shelter, everything is provided by UN. So there's no much you can add, and there's no much movement. It's like open-air kind of prison. It was great, and it was safe. It saved a lot of people. If were not that three camps, there were many Somalis who were on the verge of dying. So the camp saved like a significant amount of Somali population. It was where I started going to school. Before then, I never went to school. I started grade one when I was 15, and that is when I, uh, I, f I finished high school in the refugee camps. So I should say thanks to, to the UN because of that, because that is an opportunity I could not get from my own country. UN brought everybody to the camps and they started schools and instead of grabbing a gun, kids are using to learn and the schools were massive. There were a lot of people in the education system and UN started grade one and 
as we were going, they were building, like, we don't have grade 7, let us build grade 7. Then we reach grade 8, let's build grade 8. It is uh, so significant. What do you think would have happened to you had you not gone to Dadaab, if you'd not crossed over the border and been taken under the care of the UN? I would be dead by now, I'm sure, because I was the age when we were growing up and kids similar age to me already had guns and and I did not. I would be I would be bullied to death because my community did not have arms. You know, kids like my age would kill me, simply like that. And and a lot of other people would be would be dead by then. In Dadaab, the persecution of the Somali Bantus continued, and so UNHCR decided to move them to another refugee camp called Kakuma, some 500 miles away in northwestern Kenya. Around 11,800 Somali Bantus were accommodated in Kakuma in 2002, along with 58,000 refugees from other countries, including Sudan, Uganda and Ethiopia. For most of them, including Muhuddin Labar, this would be the final African leg of a journey which would lead them to the United States as part of a US government resettlement programme. His plan on arrival in Maine was to build a new life for his community, centred on farming, which had been impossible in Dadaab and which most had not practised since fleeing Somalia. It's early summer and this plastic-domed greenhouse is full of seedlings ready to be planted. Farmers here are growing vegetables like beetroot, broccolini and fennel for the first time ever. Hassan Barjon is the farm manager and he's watering a number of different crops today. Tomato, uh, potatoes, uh, lettuce, squash. And do you have any crops which are particular to Somalia that you've brought here? Majran, clear, maize. One of his responsibilities is to ensure the efficient running of the farm. No chemicals are used here. It's all organic and sustainable, a tradition which has been brought from Somalia's Juba Valley. We don't use machines or chemicals, which is the conventional way of farming here in the U.S. We just use our bare hands to till the soil. Why is that a good way to farm? We don't have the knowledge of chemicals and we prefer to grow our crops without them. We won't have machines. We can't afford them. So we depend on our own human power that saves gas and the environment. What do you think American farmers can learn from, from you and from your farming techniques? They can learn from us how to save energy, how to grow without harming the environment. From them, we can learn how to mass-produce crops from different markets so we can learn from each other. Each farmer, the majority of whom are women, tends to his or her small plot. And then, as a community, together, they're growing cash crops like corn, onion and potatoes as part of a traditional cooperative approach called Ishkashito. Ishkashito is a cooperative model. 
a group of people agreed to grow together on the land and share the work and profits. It works perfectly here. Once we establish trust within the group, and I think it could work for American farmers as well. The Ishkashito system helps to bring the community together, a key objective of the association, and it empowers its members while helping them to retain their culture, according to executive director Muhyiddin Libar. Many of the people we work with doesn't read or write, and, and it is difficult to, to, to get a job when you don't read or write the local language, English. And people are really hard workers. And what I'm doing right now is to bring the people skills and manpower. People are producing food for sale, and that is how they are like creating an income. And, and that is how we are empowering. And also uh, we are empowering by increasing the amount of food people can, can produce for themselves. We have a lot of people who are just coming to farm and produce food for the families. That's another way of empowering. How important is land to a Somali Bantu? It's really important. We have been farming since 2014. We knew the importance of land tenure or land ownership. Land was everything in our culture. Uh, we know of everything we do was farming, producing food, rearing animals. So our people are connected to the land. From birth to death, our connection to the land is so huge. Whilst the farming association is in itself thriving, the challenge for all immigrant groups is how to live and work alongside and ultimately integrate with their new host community. Lana Cannon-Dracup is a Maine native and has worked for the association as a farm operations manager for two years. She recognises some of the challenges her Somali colleagues face. There are pockets of diversity in Maine, like Portland and the Lewiston-Auburn area. I mean, I think it's no secret that it's largely people of European descent, um, mostly white. And um, But yeah, I mean, Mainers can be stern. I, I would say that they also are deeply caring people who, who try to help out folks when needed. But I, I think there's a hesitance and a fear that most Americans, I think, are faced with in the unknown. And um, I think this could be, especially in the smaller communities, a very difficult place to break into. Have you seen those sorts of challenges for this particular community, for the Somali Bantu community? Yeah, it can be a challenge to, to build relationships when there are immediate assumptions based on appearance and racism. And um, I also have seen... Uh, Muhyiddin in particular make very amazing relationships happen very quickly um, because when it comes down to it this is a hard-working community that cares deeply for each other and really makes a huge impression once people get to know them. What have you learned from this community? Well they're expert farmers which is really um, amazing to work with but I think also the dedication to each other and the fact that humans you know, hold this really high place and that nothing else is really more important. And I imagine that comes out of the experiences that they've had um, in Somalia, Kenya, and then getting here. So, yeah, I think it's that that real urge to care for each other. And I think we should all be more close-knit and 
dedicated to our family and community members. When the first Somalis came to Lewiston-Oban, there was some local opposition, especially when the early arrivals encouraged other Somalis to move here. They considered it a safe and welcoming place. Today, in these twin cities of around 60,000 people, there are around 7,000 Somalis, of whom 3,000 are Bantus. Many receive government assistance in the form of food stamps. In downtown Lewiston, there are noticeable presents frequenting Somali-owned cafes and stores. Muhyiddin Libar says the effort to integrate is still a work in progress. Integration is a little bit slow. I blame that to the spoken language. Our people doesn't speak English. So if you don't know English, it's difficult to communicate to your next door neighbor. You know, there's no place for Somali Bantus. There's no place for the whites. It is like all over. Like your next door neighbor is a white person. If you can't communicate to them, the integration is difficult. But right now, what we are seeing happening is a fully integrated community from the next generation coming out of high school, coming out of middle school. They're fully integrated. They, their culture is a, a little bit different from what we came with, but still they're keeping section of our culture and, and picking up the American culture. We have programs that we are teaching the kids to be in their culture. At the same time, adapt cultures that is good. You know, 100% of our culture is not good and 100% of American culture is no good. So what we are teaching is sections of the American culture that is good to be adapted and sections of our culture that is bad to be thrown away. Just try to come up with somebody who is well-round trained and educated and who can be in every environment and survive. How does farming help that integration? This is how we produce food. And food is it's like universal and everybody needs food, everybody eats food. And if we can produce food, then we that's a way of communicating and integrating to the local community. And we are selling at several farmers market and, and the people at those farmers markets are our customers and we love them and they love us. And that is another integration going on. There's no let-up in the hard work on this dry, stony soil. Rain is forecast in the next day or so to further nourish these crops. The men and women of the Somali Bantu Community Association were born of the land in the Juba Valley. And it is on this farm in Maine they've called liberation that they have finally returned to the land and a life which will help them to grow as people and a new immigrant community. This is Daniel Dickinson in Maine, signing off this edition of our UN News podcast, The Lid Is On. You can hear more of our in-depth reporting pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts online. Thanks for tuning in.